We were to Acts chapter 3. Acts 3 and 4 go together, part of really the same episode. We'll just read chapter 3 mainly this morning here and refer you to some other verses of chapter 4 later on. In Acts 1, the Lord ascends into heaven. In Acts 2, it's Pentecost. The ascended Jesus sends forth the Holy Spirit. The gospel is preached and 3,000 are added to the number of the church. And then we don't know how much time passes between Acts 2 and Acts 3, but Christ reveals himself again in the preaching of his name. And we're looking at that name in the Catechism this morning, the name Jesus. Boys and girls, the name Jesus means Savior, and you'll read that name Jesus in Acts 3 with me here. Acts 3, God's Word, beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately His feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you, why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, 
whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Then the temple priests and guardians come, are upset with them for preaching Jesus. But verse 4 of chapter 4 says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. We end the scripture reading there, and I invite you to take out the Smaller Forms and Prayers book and to turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 11. It's page 212 in the Small Forms and Prayers book in front of you. Page 212. And this Christian summary of biblical teaching is expounding here on the Apostles' Creed. And we've considered, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And now we're moving on to confess our belief in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And we're going to take our time here, this time just looking at the name Jesus. So question 29 says, actually let's uh, say these together. I'll ask the question and recite it in unison with me. Question 29, why is the Son of God called Jesus which means Savior, because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No, although they boast of being his, By their actions, they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. Let's bow before God in prayer. Our Father in heaven who gives his word, we pray that you would bring your word to our hearts by your spirit today. Pray that you bless the minister of your word everywhere. Thank you for this past class this meeting and for Mr. Josh File sustaining his exam. We pray you would guide his future where you would use him. We pray you bless the ministries of Reverend Coleman at home this morning and here to us tonight. And we pray that you would visit us now in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Boys and girls, this morning we talk about a name, the name Jesus, and as the Catechism reminds us, it means Savior, Savior. Where did that name come from? We know names are important, right? We all have a name. If you don't have a name, it's pretty hard to, to live in this world, right? I mean, what are you going to put on your paper at school in the blank that says name if you don't have a name? We, we have names, and they're important to us. Sometimes people like their names. Sometimes people don't really like their names, but, but as it goes, your name gets attached to you, and pretty soon people don't hardly hear your name, they just 
They just think of you and they hear that word, those syllables. I want you to hear the name Jesus this morning. When we use that name Jesus, we should hear what it means. Boys and girls, have you ever asked your parents why they named you, what they named you? Maybe they would say, well, there's a relative you have with that name, or they really like that name, or a friend had that name. Parents, you know, before the baby is born, they, they ponder names. Maybe they read books of names. They talk together about names and what they're going to name this child who they expect to be born. But we know that Mary and Joseph didn't have to do any of that for their firstborn child. Because the angel that visited Mary and said she was going to have a baby, he said to her, you're going to have a son and you shall call him Jesus. And then in that dream, the angel visited Joseph. Matthew one twenty one. he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So God gave the name, and God told the purpose and the meaning of the name. His name will be Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. In fact, Jesus is just the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. In the Old Testament Hebrew, Joshua comes out in the New Testament Greek as, as what we say Jesus. But, but it's the name that means Savior, or Jehovah saves. And now it's laid upon this special son, In a special way, it's the perfect name, the name that we love, the matchless name of Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Let's look at that name Jesus and notice this morning that, first of all, it alerts us to our deepest need. Secondly, it assures us of complete deliverance. And then thirdly, it awakens us to a jealous gratitude. Well, how does it alert us to our need? Well, the answer is this, that when God names His son, Jesus, he names us sinner. When God says, here's a savior, then he says to us, you need saving. Now, everybody in this world knows we need saving, right? Every day you can find people who are quite frantic about getting saved, getting saved from an environmental catastrophe, getting saved from financial ruin, getting saved from disease and sickness, getting saved from a toxic relationship. What do we need to be saved from? It's one of the most important questions anybody could ask. And if you're trying to evangelize someone, you're talking about being saved, and they say, what do I need to be saved from? That is the critical juncture, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's the most important question at this point. Because it determines the kind of Savior you're going to seek. What do I need to be saved from? You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from a bad economy. You shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from environmental catastrophe. No, you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so all at once, God says, at the root of it all, Beneath everything destructive in the environment and in our relationships and in our health, if we trace it back and say, where does all this come from? The answer is sin. And boys and girls, sin is disobedience to God's law. It's that God said, this is my will for you. I created you. You should live this way. And we said, no, thanks. 
sin. Every solution that doesn't go to the root is just a band-aid put upon a gaping infected wound and it may hide it for a moment, but it's utterly worthless. God sends a Savior to go to the root of the problem. His name is Jesus. In Acts 2, when that name is declared to the people who had murdered Jesus in Acts 2, they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And 3,000 coming to know their root problem came to know the Savior Jesus. And now in Acts 3, another situation arises sometime later. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. Maybe it surprises us that they they know the temple is fulfilled, but they're still going there to to pray, going there to evangelize and so forth. And, And they're on their way to the temple, and there sits a crippled man. He's been crippled since he was born. He's more than 40 years old, and he gets propped up there at the temple gate day after day to beg alms. Alms, boys and girls, are or food or money for poor people, and he's, he sits there. He sits there asking, I need something so I can survive today. Give me some money. Give me some money. People are so used to it. They just pass on by. It's been there for 40 years or so, and he's so used to it. He just, we get the impression from what we read here that he's just kind of in this trance, this, this mind-numbing mantra, alms, alms, help me, help me. Whatever he says, as he sits there, people pass by and he mutters his words. But the Lord Jesus is coming to the temple today in the ministry of Peter and John. And he's coming to the temple there to do something marvelous. Now, it's a sad scene that we have here. It's sad for two reasons. It's sad, first of all, because there's a crippled man, right? And so we have not... A creature as he was originally made in the Garden of Eden, but he is, he's broken. He's misshaped. He has a disability. His legs don't work. And you can imagine as a boy how hard that must have been, right? He couldn't go run out and play with the other boys. He could just sit there and watch them. Or as a young man, he couldn't, with other young men, dream of what he wanted to do, what kind of work he was going to do, and how he's going to care for a family. But he just could contemplate having people help him for the rest of his life. And, and now he's 40 plus and he's sitting there and he's not part of the joyous community going into the temple and praising God together, right? He, he's left out. We know that any son of Aaron who had a physical deformity was actually cast out. You couldn't serve in the temple if your body was in any way deformed, blemished, or broken. Some suggest that maybe they didn't even allow the lame to come into the temple to worship. I don't know if that's true, but certainly his physical ailment here is an obstacle to joining the festive throng. In Acts 2, we read that after the gospel was preached, and this, these people believe that there's this, this glorious glorious community of saints that they, 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 they read the word together, they hear the preaching together, they break bread together, they care for each other. It's a joyous community. But this man has no such thing. He sits here in isolation. He sits here in the shadow of the old temple. He sits here with a misshaped, needy, isolated life, and he needs restoring grace. But he's not the only one. Because the other reason this scene is so sad is because the church is crippled. The church is deformed. Ask yourself, what 
What is a beggar doing seated in the church? If we had somebody on financial hard times this morning that propped themselves up in the door jam at the back there as we walked out and begged money for us, what would we do? We'd say, what is going on here? Call the deacons. Say, this is not the way it goes in the church. God told his people to open their hand generously towards those in need. But here's a man who has to beg to survive in the church of God. There's a reminder and an indictment that they walk past every time they go to the temple that declares you are living in unbelief. You are living in rebellion against God. And so here's a people approaching a hollowed out temple with their hollowed out hearts who see the helplessness and the hopelessness of a cripple, but they can't see their own broken condition. Can we see ours? We are spiritual cripples, aren't we? Of ourselves, we are only deformed. And we see the evidence in the careless words we speak and our selfish actions and our impulsive anger and impatience and our unclean thoughts and our inordinate love of money and our failure to love God. All these things, Jesus says, come out of the heart. It's a heart issue. And we're powerless to fix it. Can't do anything to fix ourselves. The Lord lets us know that sometimes in very obvious ways, right? Maybe we have a recurring pattern of thoughts. We can't break it. Thoughts of fear. Thoughts of anger. Maybe we have a file of lustful images that races through the mind. You see? And we're helpless. Sin has reduced the whole world to beggars, cripples of one sort or another, and everyone's begging somewhere. Everyone's got a street corner. But have we found the right one? Are we begging at the right place this morning? That's the question, right? Have we come to see what our real issue is? It's not a lack of money or job. It's not even a health issue. Our greatest issue is the source, the root, the bottom of it all, that I haven't obeyed God. And I deserve his wrath. Are we hungry for the liberating word? Are we able to sing, I'm evil born in sin? So the name Jesus says, let's get serious about the real trouble. His name is Savior because our name is Sinner. But then the name Jesus says, here's a complete Savior for all your trouble. And let's look at that secondly. The name that assures us of complete deliverance. As Peter and John heard the layman's mechanical petition for alms, they say to him, This is why I said it seems like he's just stuck in a trance here. They say, look at us. So he looks up, 
Probably puts out his hand, I'm ready, what do you got for me? And they say, no, we don't have any money. Well, thanks a lot. No, we have something greater than that. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. What a moment. The Christ had come to his own temple, right? To proclaim a kingdom of restoration. And he's not just here to heal this man, but he actually is summoning the man to faith. As we read on in chapter 3, it seems the man is healed by faith, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's an encounter, a personal encounter between Christ and a crippled man as Christ ministers himself through the apostles and through their word. He comes to make all things new. And the man accepts the invitation, he hears the summons, he's, he's pulled by Christ's spirit and he believes and he's healed and he gets up, jumps up, he walks, he leaps for joy and, and here now is a sign at the temple gates that the restore of life has come, that the answer to our troubles is here, that the Jesus you crucified has overcome death and he lives. Remember Isaiah had prophesied, Isaiah 35, your God will come, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. That's this day of Acts 3. Jesus is giving a sign from heaven that he is not defeated. He's very much alive. He's won the victory. He has restoring grace, and he brings now a kingdom, a reign a kingship of life. That the powers of a new age have actually now broken in upon this age, right? Because when Jesus comes back, our bodies will be raised from the dead. We're going to have a glorious new existence. But the powers of the new age have broken in upon this age. In this sign, a man is healed by the name Jesus. The name Jesus. And the Lord is is with this sign, drawing all attention to himself. And by the preaching, he's unfolding here. He's proclaiming what's happening, that there's a Savior. He's a complete Savior, not just for our souls, but for our bodies, not just for the future, as we so often think, but for today. A Savior for today. A Savior for always. Now, there's an order, isn't there, to the healing of Christ's kingdom. And we know that in the order of healing... The full restoration of these bodies awaits the day of of resurrection, the day of Jesus' return. But the restoration begins with the removal of sin's penalty. And then it includes the removal of sin's power. And one day it will include the full removal of sin's presence and the removal of sin's pain. But already now Christ is Savior. So amazing words at the end of the chapter. Verse 26, Peter preaches to the Jews, To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. God sent you a Savior to turn you from your sin, to convict you from your sin, to convict you of your sin, and to, and to show you a salvation. And In verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, 
so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The glorious language, sins blotted out, and the refreshing presence of the smile of the Father filling your life. We live in a broken world, filled with hopeless people, repeating their mindless mantras, worn-out solutions. But here comes one who is rightly called Jesus, Savior, who alone can go to the root of the problem and say your problem, the problem why you lack joy, the problem why you're bored, the problem why you're so afraid, the problem is that you are separated from God. You've come under his curse. And here's the Savior who on the cross bore the curse, absorbed the penalty, paid the price to set sinners free and to reconcile them to God forever. Here's a Savior not just for the hour of death. He's certainly a Savior for the hour of death. We rejoice that we do not walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. But he's not a Savior just for the hour of death. He's a Savior for this morning. He is the the life with God. He is the fellowship, the strength. He He is the joy. He is the peace. He's one you can call upon in all the petty problems of this daily mundane life. Boys and girls, you can call upon Jesus when you're having trouble with your schoolwork or trouble obeying your mom and dad. You can call upon him. He's a savior because he's gone to the root of the problem. And the healing demonstrates it. And what an amazing thing it is. For any whose conscience accuses them and say, you know, I don't know if he could be a savior for me. The Gospels preach in Acts 3 to the people who literally murdered Jesus. Killed the prince of life. Said, instead of Jesus, I'd rather have a murderer as my friend. And now the Gospel comes to them and says, turn from your sin. Call upon this Jesus. And all your sins will be blotted out entirely. And you will know the refreshing presence of the living God as your friend. It's not the cripple here who sought out Peter and John, was it? It wasn't the cripple who sought out Jesus. It was that Jesus came to the cripple. And Jesus convicted him of sin, and Jesus gave him faith, and Jesus raised up his body as a demonstration that Christ restores and heals. The name Jesus is a glorious testimony that everything that you and I need is found in him. Remember this always, that the name Jesus is not a name that we pinned on him. The name Jesus is a name the Father gave him from above. The Father knows our issues better than we do. And if he says to you, here's a complete Savior, Jesus is his name, Savior, then that name ought to fill us with great comfort and great assurance to believe that we have one who won't drive us away. We won't have one who will say, well, I wish I could help you. There's nothing I could do. We have one who rightly bears the name because he saves. And all of us this morning here, we need to be saved, don't we? 
None of us are past saving. It doesn't matter if we're already converted and have years in the faith. We need saving today, don't we? We're attacked by the evil one. We again have failed God by our personal sin. We have places of great confusion and distress in our lives. And God says, pay attention now, look at me. His name is Jesus, Savior. Peter and John say to the cripple, stop the the meaningless mantras, look at us. And in a far greater way, Jesus says in the preaching of his word, stop it now, look at me, my name is Jesus, Savior. When that name just comes in one ear and out the other and we continue on in our state of desperation, no one can help me, what will I do, I'll have to help myself, then we haven't heard the name. His name is Jesus, Savior, your Savior. But when we hear that name, then our lives are changed and the joy begins. And that brings us to the third point. That this name, Jesus, that alerts us to our deepest need and secondly assures us of complete deliverance is finally a name that awakens us to jealous gratitude. Verse 8, we read, So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Boys and girls, what a picture that must have been. This, This man who's been crippled all his life, who could never stand, could never walk, is now dancing about. He's so excited. Do you think he would have ever forgotten the day this happened? So we'll sing in a moment. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come. And leap, ye lame, for joy. What a day. Man goes to the temple and he's praising God. He, he gets it right, right? He's, he's holding on to Peter and John, but he's not praising them. He's praising God. Praise be to Jehovah. He saved me. He's delivered me. And Peter gets it right. The crowd gathers and they apparently are looking at Peter and John with some wonder and amazement. Peter says, what are you looking at us for? You think we did this thing? No, this is the work of Jesus See, when we get the name Jesus right, then it turns our lives into lives of praise and thanksgiving. And so our worship services are always a barometer, aren't they, of our current understanding of the name Jesus. If there's no life in our worship, then we're not seeing our life in any way as I was a helpless cripple and I've been delivered, right? Because if if our life is like that, and you know those moments when you were desperate and God intervened, you know there's joy and gladness and gratitude. And so it's not that, well, today I haven't had such a moment Because our whole life is this. If we just pause to contemplate our problems and our troubles and what we've done to God and what we deserve, and then we contemplate this, that God gave us beloved from heaven to be for us Savior, then we surely have cause to leap about and praise the Lord.
So there is always room for greater gratitude. But I call this a jealous gratitude. Because all the praise has to go to God and no one else. And now I want to read to you from chapter 4 of Acts. As Peter and John get arrested, then they respond. The authorities have asked them in Acts 4 verse 7, by what power, by what name have you done this? Oh, well, we are glad to tell you. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which the re- which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. In Acts 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, you can claim that Jesus is not the only way to heaven, but if that's your claim, you can't claim to believe the Bible, right? Because the Bible is absolutely clear. There's no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. Now, the Catechism says, after it unpacks that name Jesus, it says, well, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints and themselves or elsewhere, do they really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? It says, no. Although they boast of being his, by their actions, they deny the only Savior, Jesus. And the context of the Catechism being written is clearly the domination of the Roman Catholic Church in which people are being taught They didn't want to say Christ is not the only Savior. They didn't want to say that, but they were clearly being taught that you need some add-ons to Jesus. Need some saints. Mary's a good one. Pray to Mary. The apostles, some famous guys from church history. And you need some good works of your own. Make sure you do those. Make sure you live a good enough life. And you need some other things, maybe some relics to bow down to, maybe an indulgence from the Pope, maybe a pilgrimage to Rome. And the Catechism asks that important question. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere, do they really believe Jesus is the only Savior? Do they really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer is no. They boast that they're his, but their actions deny it. Now, it doesn't just apply to those who embrace Roman Catholic theology. The issue is much broader, isn't it? It applies to anyone who seeks their salvation anywhere else but Christ. And it also applies to the sin that threatens your life and my life this morning. And so we always have to pray to be alert. God, help me to see where I'm resting in something other than Jesus. That I might not seek my salvation in others. And my parents who are strong Christians. Or in my father or grandfather who was a minister. 
or in my famous theologian whom I connect myself with. And we must not seek our salvation in ourselves. Look at my church attendance. Look at how many committees I've served on. Look at how kind I am to visitors. Look at how much I pray. Look at how I haven't messed up my life. Like him or her. Look at, look at how I show up on time for work. Surely that counts for something. If we seek salvation in others, ourselves, or anywhere else, maybe it's a, another religion we don't really say we believe, but we secretly hold on to it a little bit as kind of a backup plan. Or we put a little bit of our hope in a political party. Or we think we are a little bit strong before God because we belong to a certain Christian organization that has a great reputation, a long history, very, very well organized. Nope. If we put our hope in anything but Jesus, then we're denying him. There's no both and with Jesus. It's either or. Either or. Because he's a perfect savior. He's a perfect savior. Catechism says it so well. Either Jesus is not a perfect savior... Or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. Beautiful words. So then why do we load our backs up? With burdens we cannot carry. With heavy loads. Having to do this and get it right before God will love me. Having to feel guilty over this for the next 20 years because that's the penance that I, that I must bear. Does Jesus need help? When God named him Savior, did he name you co-Savior? When God named him Mediator, did he name you co-Mediator? We can't cancel a single sin. We can't carry ourselves through a single day. We can't change the smallest circumstance of our life. We can't move ourselves one inch towards God. We were dead in our sin. We hated God. We were guilty. We were fit for eternal hell. And then God gave us a Savior. And what does God want us to do? He wants us to say, you know, that was pretty good, God, but we've got some things that can enhance him. No, he wants us to fall down before him and say, Jesus is my everything. My everything. He wants us to come into church praising God from our hearts with deep gratitude. Not looking for the praise we might get from men, but praising him. And then he wants us to say it boldly to a world that is so confused and dying in their sin. That there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And we will not compromise. It's not loving to compromise on this. It is death. It is only loving for me to tell you that your problem is sin. And the only solution is the one and only Savior, Jesus. And he will not drive away anyone who comes to him. Come to him. Repent. That your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from God. 
Brothers and sisters, do you love that name, Jesus? Is it more precious? Is it sweeter to you than anything else? Is it the basis of your confidence? Is it, is it the ember that warms your heart in worship, that name Jesus, Savior? God gave him for you. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for your gift from heaven. We pray that we might become better acquainted with our Lord Jesus, that we will rejoice in the assurance of the name that you have given to him, and that we might know him in his person and his work. Forgive us, Father, where our hearts have strayed, where we have put confidence in other things, most of all in our own supposed goodness. May we know our sin and rest in Christ alone. Praise be to Jesus. In his name, amen. Let's stand to sing, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. It's number 291. As we exalt the name of our Lord Jesus, 291, let's sing the first six stanzas and then we'll sing.